The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, so we're going to continue uh, in Luke chapter 7. This morning, if you were with us last week, we went through verses 1 through 10, right? And uh, what we had there was Jesus, he was getting called over to come and to, to help uh, a centurion's servant who was on his sickbed or deathbed. And, and the centurion has such faith that he said, you don't even need to come under my roof. I've heard about you. You have power. Just say it. And it will be done. And Jesus marveled. He was amazed at this man's faith. He was amazed at the fact. He said, so much so, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. And so he was stunned. Right? Now, if you remember last week, I also mentioned, as we were beginning chapter 7, that really all of 7 is one big story. And so even though we're looking at a new piece of the section today, keep it together. And really, at the end, what you see at the end of 7 is you hear this question, who is this? Because that's really what everybody's asking. Who is this man who can heal with the word? And today we're going to see, like spoiler alert, raise people from the dead, right? Who is this man, Christ? And, and that's the question. And then I also had mentioned that really there's a, there's a thread of faith that connects all this together. So let's look just a little bit more. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 11 through 17 of chapter 7. And, and, and here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a person who's in the grip of grief. Right? We, we just heard about this as Pastor Kevin was reading the text. But we, we see someone who's it, really grieving over a death. Right? We see a miraculous healing. We see a large crowd. And we're going to observe a miracle right? as we read the text. But I want you to know, from last week to this week, even though there's a lot of similarities, you have crowds, you have someone sick, you have someone dying, you have a miracle that's happening, really, the gap between the two couldn't be greater. And here's what I mean by that. The centurion was wealthy. He had influence. He had power. Um, and he, he had a, a, a slave or a servant who was on the deathbed, right? But here we have a woman who, by contrast, is, is, is poor. She's powerless, and you're like, how do you know she's poor? We'll get to that. She's a widow, and now her only son is dead. But, but Jesus is the same. <laughs> Yesterday, today, and forever, and what is that good in a world where everything changes? So let's look at the text. We're going to first look at 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. It said, soon after, soon after what? After he just had this moment with the centurion, right? We don't know how long, but it was very quick. He went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Let's just think about this for a moment. This has got to be a very bleak and bitter day for this woman, right? Um, she's already had to bury her husband, right? And, and now she has to bury her only son. Now, that alone, even in our culture, is enough to just crush it, right? If you think about it, right? The grief and destruction here, though, is magnified because in that culture, this would mean she had nobody essentially to support her, to provide for her, and to even fend for her, to help her, right? Um, everything was harder, in a sense, in that culture, labor-wise, right? If, if you wanted to cook, you, you didn't have a hot pocket, and you didn't have a microwave, 
right? You had to get wood, right? And then you had to get water. And you had to boil that water. And maybe it was clean, I don't know. But all these things took time. And they took many hands and many feet. And she now has just herself. Her husband's gone, her son's gone. And, and, and so many people in that situation, in that culture, and at that time, eventually become a beggar. And that's not her life. And she's faced with that. She's not only grieving the loss of her son, she's grieving what this means now. And, and you might think, well, she probably doesn't grieve. And she may, but many times they did not. So the depth of this tragedy, it's, it's actually difficult to grasp what she's going through. But if we want to try to put ourselves in her, in her shoes or in her sandals, we have to try. So, so picture her. Kind of seems strange when, you, when you're preaching. But picture her, right? Her cheeks are probably stained with tears, right? She's looking at a gray cold corpse on a stretcher or, or in a casket. She's surrounded by people. She probably feels extremely alone. She's crushed, she's confused, she's broken hearted. And, and if you ever experienced that, and I don't mean you, otherwise we've got to talk after church. <laughs> but if you've ever had people that you love experience death, you know how much it hurts. This is a heavy topic. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. So just be, oh man, I came for a happy, sloppy moment. Hang in there, we'll get there. We're not there yet. Because we've got to feel it. We have to feel it, which is point one. Death is the great destroyer of life. That's the first point. I have witnessed my fair share of death personally and pastorally throughout the years. I've done more funerals than I've done weddings. Um, I, I can tell you this. I've wept with many people. I've had many people weep with me. I have wept with very old saints who actually were rejoicing the fact that their loved one was no longer suffering and was with the Lord. But they were still weeping and they were still grieving. But it was a different grief. But I've also been beside somebody who had to, let's just not get into the details, have a funeral with a really little casket. And, it, and it's awful. It, it's awful. You know, I remember that day. And, and so these things shape you, and they shape people. I remember my first emergency pastoral call. I won't go into details here, but just know this. I remember walking into the Indiana hospital. And all of the things that were happening, and I was called to go into this room. This is my first time going into that room. And I could see and hear a mother and a father weeping and wailing in a way that I had never experienced in my life. And it just shook me to the core of who I am. And the reason was that they were trying to process a horrific tragedy by the hands of an evil man as they lost their only daughter their only two grandchildren, their only daughter. And they're trying to process that. And it was at the hands of this woman's husband. That's all I'm saying. And it was ugly. It was pure evil. And I remember sitting with them for months as they attempted to live. As they attempted to live. The problem was, though, i got to tell you, the world doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. You want it to stop. You actually think it should stop. But each day, the sun comes up, and the sun goes down, right? Um, things happen. The cars keep going past the house. People keep coming in. They keep bringing you food. Bills come in the mail now, 
right? And, and they had to deal with all the horrific thoughts of the, the police and the newspaper, and they didn't even have time to breathe, and they're trying to figure out how do we even process life when basically a grenade went off inside our ear and I can't even feel And that's where they were at. But here's the thing, life goes on even though you feel like it has ended. It goes on. When, when a loved one dies, you want the rest of the world to stop. They, or at least stand still, slow down just for a minute to cry with you. But it, it doesn't. It just keeps moving. Can you see this woman in this story, in this picture? Sometimes I think there's just times there's this temptation to read devoid of the moment, right? Now you don't you gotta be careful. You don't shove too much emotion into a text. But she's a widow and has lost her only son. I don't think we can actually shove enough emotion into the text. She's grieved. She's hurting. She's followed by a crowd of people. By the way, it sounds weird, but in that time, at that. In that culture, you would pay people to mourn with you. Strange. They would play music and they would weep and they would wail. You know, why would they do that? It's, it's kind of like a funeral home. You pay people to care for the dead. Well, they kind of did that and they would weep. They were kind of professional weepers and grievers. So we don't know who is in this gathering with her at that moment and at that time. Because here's the thing. She's being confronted by another group. <laughs> and this is a lively party. You have to assume, right? And it's Jesus, and it's, it's Jesus' disciples, and it's Jesus, the crowd. Everyone's following. This man's fame is growing, and because it's growing, you have people who actually know him and love him and want to be like him. But then you have people that are just there with popcorn, and they're like, man, I can't wait to see what he does today. And they're all following, <laughs> and it's lively. It's got to be lively, right? They just experienced another miracle. Soon after, now they're heading in. And you have two crowds coming together. But this, this crowd is joyful. It's exuberant. It's excited. It's, it's laughing. The people are following a man. And this man's very much alive. This man's Christ. He's full of life. And no doubt in that moment, he's, he's probably laughing and lighthearted with them. They're rejoicing in what God has done in and through him. And as he walks, you've got to think, this is not the kind of guy you want at the funeral. Well, maybe he's exactly the guy you need at the funeral. But she wouldn't know that. So two crowds come together, and they meet at the gate of name. My guess is, at first, it's awkward. It's got to be awkward, right? However, it probably doesn't take long for the exuberant party to realize this is unbecoming of what's happening. They start to see, some pieces start to come together. They recognize that their excitement's a little out of place, and they probably try to downshift and switch gears in that moment. You can almost picture them as they probably look down at the ground, hard to look at people that are hurting like this. They probably begin to mumble something very sorry, my condolences, God bless. They don't understand her pain. Nobody does in sense in that moment. Christ He's the only one, though, who can really understand. And so look at verse 13. Just look at it. It says, and when the Lord saw her, it, it's so much more than just physically looking at something. Oh, he, he's, yeah, he sees her. No one else sees her. Well, he sees her. He had compassion on her. And he said to her, 
strange words in a sense, right? By the way, point two is Jesus is the Lord who is moved by compassion. Jesus, the man of sorrows, walks right into her sadness and he saw her. His eyes met hers and it's genuine. It's intense grief. It's compassion. He feels for her. While the rest of the crowd probably is trying to avoid eye contact, he's piercing her eyes. And he sees her. And he doesn't meet her with some cliche or trite saying, well, at least he's in a better place now. You know, or something like that. And people that say that oftentimes are just trying to be helpful. But it's often it's not helpful. Our culture doesn't know what to do with that. What's even more sad or difficult for me to comprehend is sometimes the church doesn't know what to do with that. And that's strange to me. It's really strange to me. Because if you read the Bible, it's on every page. <laughs> it's just death. Right? I mean, seriously. It's, it's death. Ever since the garden and the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate the fruit which they ought not eat and rebelled against God, they surely died. Everyone who has been born after that has been born into Adam. That language doesn't make sense to you. Hang out. I can't explain all these pieces. And death has reigned ever since. And death, by the way, is much more than a physical death. It is a spiritual death. You have been separated from the one who has made you, who is life. So you're animated dust from the moment you're born. That's, that's rough. Let it be rough. Because it's the consequence of rebellion. It's the consequence of sin. It's horrific. No, it's just a part of life. It's antithetical to life. It's opposed to life. It's death. And it's horrible. We don't like to think about this. But the Christ here has compassion on her. One writer said this. He said, Luke uses the strongest word possible to describe Jesus' pity. He said, the root word from which it comes from refers to what's inside, the heart, the liver, the lungs, essentially the guts. He says, it describes an emotion that has a physical effect. And this is the, it's not just like, oh, he's feeling it to the depths of who he is. Now think about that. The God who knit you in your mother's womb, who is sovereign over all, who knows all, is feeling great pain <coughs> over this death. He, he hates it. Jesus fell for her. He, he, essentially, he convulsed with compassion. And then he says these words, do not weep. ever. You, you want to just run on to like, why? Don't go there too quick. Imagine what she just heard. Do not weep. Right? I mean, it's, it's awful unless you're able to do something to cause my weeping to cease. Right? Have you ever seen, you might have been near somebody who's just weeping and wailing, and you're like, don't weep, it's okay. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He, in that case, he would say, weep your eyes out. Weep until you're dehydrated. Grieve, right? But he, he says, do not weep. See, Jesus, here's what's interesting about this, comparatively speaking, to last week. 
Jesus intervenes in this woman's life without any indication of faith on her part or calling out for us. Last week, you have someone sent, go get me Jesus, bring him here, I know he can help me. And wow, he has faith. We don't know anything about this woman other than she's hurting and Christ is there. How often does Jesus enter into our grief and sorrow without us ever asking him? How about all the time? We don't have a distant deity. We have one who in every way is intimately connected to you in a way he sees your soul. He knows he knows what has grieved you. And he cares compassionately. See, and here's why. It's because Jesus' extraordinary capacity and compassion is grounded in his loving character. It's, it's not grounded in the circumstance. It's who he is. And that's good news. Because that, that, that means even when I don't deserve his compassion. He's with me. Even when I have nothing to do with his compassion, he's there. He can't stop caring because of who he is. He always cares. Even when I don't give a lick about him or his care, he's there. Jesus has a heart that's, that's big enough for your grief and for your sorrow. He does. His compassion, his empathy, his love, it's authentic, it's real, it comes from inside his guts. It's who he is. It's who he is. It's what? It's really what drove him to, to put on flesh and to suffer and go to a cross. Compassion spoke about Christ more than, I, I think, almost anything else in the New Testament. And I didn't double check that, but, but I think that is when it talks about his attributes. Yes, it's love, but, but love and compassion go just like this because it's action. Compassion drove him to come. That's love, right? And so, can you picture it? You personally may have such a, a hurt that you can't even voice it. I know some of you have a past trauma that has, has left you speechless, and some of you can't even talk about it. You just can't get words out. Um, are you afflicted, though, today? And if you're, you're like, great week and all is well. Wonderful. But it's coming. Are you hurting? You have deep sorrow. I want you to know this. Jesus hurts with you. See, no human being can ever say the right words to make it go away. There, there are some pieces of your heart in your life, in your past, or even in your present right now, or your future, that, that there are things that it will change you, it will affect you, you'll never be the same. That family would never be the same that we talked about. But what do you do? The question is, what do you do when pain is loud and God seems silent? What do you do? That's a good question. That's where I want to spend a little bit of time and a little bit of thought. One thing is, you just weep. You just weep. You're supposed to grieve. People don't want to grieve. They just want to get on with getting on so they don't have to feel and keep stopping it, right? Eventually, that's going to come out. And it's, it's different how it comes out for everybody. But you, you have to work through it. There's a, a book in the Bible called Lamentations. And um, it's written by the weeping prophet, right? And, and it's written by Jeremiah. And it's in a particular time that's awful. 
Because I don't have time to get into it. If you hang out with us long enough, and I live long enough, we're going to preach through this. Because I want to have a theology of suffering to understand how to be and how to have hope in the midst of grief. Okay? But take my word for it, and then read the, the letter um, in your own time. Just to give you a, an idea how bad it is, here's how bad it is. They're in such pain, the people of Israel, that the, the families are actually eating their, their children. That's awful. It's in the Bible, so I thought it was okay to say it. Um, that's, that's how bad it is. They're, they're starving. They're, sie they're sieged. They can't go anywhere. And, and when children would die, that's what they Can't imagine. I would never have to. But I want now to read, with that in mind, sorry for that thought, Jeremiah, in the language he's using, because otherwise you don't get it. I'm in Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to read 1 through 24, but we're going to read it somewhat quick, and we're going to slow down towards the end. Okay? I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of text. And it's like, okay, do you have too much Bible? I don't think so. Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. I'm going to give you a moment. We don't put it up on the screen on purpose. Maybe I'm old <laughs> than I actually really am. We want you to learn your Bible. We want you to get used to it. Um, but faith comes by here and starts like, oh, I don't know where to find it. I can't listen. Okay, listen. Ready? Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again, the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. Much of this is very poetic. He, he has broken my bones. He has deceived and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me up about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my path perfect. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove it into my kidneys, the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all people. The object of his taunts all day long. He has filled me with, with the bitterness and saved me with wormwood. He has he's made my teeth grind on gravel. You can hear this man grasping for language to, to, to put to his suffering. Because he's continuing to testify to the goodness of God in the midst of the most horrific moment, and everyone's saying, You're insane. And he continued to go out and to preach the goodness of God, but it's like spitting in the wind. Because it never lands on anyone to where they can hear it, where they can feel it. As they look around at their circumstances, they think, you're insane. And he's feeling all alone in that moment. And you may have felt like that, even though your circumstances were definitely different. He says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereaved of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. That's the depression. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. 
remember my afflictions and my wandering and the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Really hard to pause. Because I don't want you to think that was just some afternoon and now he's walking. But hey, it is. We have no clue the distance between that period and the next word. But my guess is it's more than you think. It's probably more than you think. But here's what we learn. He says, but this I call to mind. What? And he says, and, and therefore I have hope. Because right before that, he had no hope. He was at, at the moment of despair. He said, but I call this to mind, therefore I have hope. What's he called to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Oh, that is a light that comes into the darkness of depression. It just, it just starts to dissipate. He's, he's fixing his mind on truth. He says, his mercies never come to an end. They're forever. His love goes on forever. His mercy goes on forever. This situation, essentially what he's saying is, will not go on forever. But he will. His love will. It will endure. I can trust him. They never come to an end. And, and they're new. Every morning. His mercy is new. Every morning. And listen to what he says. He goes from horrific circumstances to thinking on truth to praise. Great is your in the midst of the most horrific moment, he, he says this. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. I'll hope in him. I'll hope in, I'll hope in God. Life is hard. God is good. And so here's the deal. In the midst of your grief, in the midst of your suffering, there comes a point where you, this is the text that God just broke through this family's heart and mind and brought about hope. And that's why I'm reading it this morning. It, we read it numerous times. We talked through it. I wanted to give them language for their anger, for their grief, for their hurt. But I also wanted to give them hope. But you can't just run to that and you can't manufacture that. There's a moment when the Holy Spirit of God just comes in and he just said, give me your burdens. Hope in me. Hope in my son, right? Hope in Christ. And, and that's exactly what's happening here. And that moment, you begin to take your eyes off your circumstances and you begin to look to your Christ, the Messiah. And you begin to have hope. We live in a culture of, of death. But they almost all would say they have a philosophy for life. And I hear it. Everyone dies, by the way. Everyone talks about it. Sometimes it's the American dream. Sometimes if I just had X, Y, and Z, I'd be happy. Sometimes it's education. And, but here's the question. Does your philosophy of life, can it handle the, the weight of death and suffering? That is the question. Because it comes for everyone. It comes for me. And, and here's the deal. Sometimes you can look at people who want nothing to do with Jesus. And you think, I think they're happier than me. And they might be. They actually might be in some superficial kind of way. Or it could even be real. I know people who don't love Jesus and they love their family. <gasps> and they love their life. We should never be so trite to think that can't happen because, because of God's general grace, it can. But when tragedy hits, they have nowhere to go. Because sometimes that was their meaning of life. 
That was where they put their hope. How fragile, how fragile is life if it's not built on the firm foundation of Christ and his love? This is what Jesus is showing us. He just came out of the Sermon on the Plain, and he said, we're going to put this into practice as we go. This lady, if she doesn't have it built on the firm foundation of God, she's just seeing her foundation a wreck. But it can't withstand the storm. And here he comes. It's most often in the midst of tragedy that he comes and says, let's build on the foundation. And sometimes it takes tragedy like this for you to realize, I've been building on sinking sand. And so here he comes. And he's helping her. There, there is no self-help, self-care, self-protection, self-love, diet, exercise program, plastic surgery, investments, or anything else that can escape devastation, death. I thank you that you. It does. It does. And, and the question becomes, will I build my life on that, which is fragile, or will I build my life upon that which is Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can answer with vivid clarity these types of unimaginable questions. Only Christ. Because only Christ can raise you from the ashes of grief and, and, and bring you comfort, bring you peace that transcends your situation. It's, it's just otherworldly. It doesn't make sense to the world that's looking upon you. As you weep your eyes out and you say, Though he slay me, I will live him. Joe, thank you. Worship like that, even though it's broken. Okay? Only Christ can bring even joy to your troubled heart once again. I'll never forget the day that I got to see them look at each other with the husband and the wife and with tears smile. Uh, they never thought they'd smile again. But they did. Mm -hmm. They did. Their favorite <coughs> change. But now, for their tender, their tender people. They did not allow that moment to make them better. But we should say God didn't allow, gave them grace. But yet they, they had to persevere. They had to get out of bed. They had to pursue him. They had to set their mind on him. They could have laid in bed, just withered away. But they didn't. They said, I'm going to continue to seek him. And I think they've come to know the sweetness of Christ in a way they can never understand apart from that moment. And no one wants that moment. Well, let's see how. The story ends in Luke, though. Because where we left it off was, Jesus said, don't leave. <laughs> why? Jesus, why not? Well, here's why. Then he came up, verse 14, and he touched the beard. Uh, it's casket, right? What is that? Right? And, and the, the people carrying the stretcher stood still. But here's why. You don't touch that. Now you're unclean. And, and you're a rabbi. You don't do it. You're unclean. And Jesus goes right into it. And he said, this is wild. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. It's in that moment, I'm like, I'm dropping that thing. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. I'm out of here. Like, right? Like, we all read that. Like, oh, yeah, hey, this is normal. This is awesome. That is, that's crazy. The dude sits up and he began to speak. What did he say? I don't know, but I so desperately want to know. 
I don't know. And, and Jesus gave them to his mother. And fear, awe, seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, Now listen, a great prophet has arisen from among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Now listen, we can learn a lot. We can learn so much about Jesus right here, and even how we enter into people's grief and in their moment of hurting, of suffering, when it comes. Here's some quick ways that you should consider when grief has come to people you know, to people you love, to many people you don't know, to many people you don't know, but God should place them in your life now. Jesus sees her. Will, will you create enough margin in your life to slow down and see the people in front of you? Because it's the only way you're going to see them. If, if you're just constantly going. And there's times where you got to. Life is like that, right? So don't hear that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, it's me. I'm always busy. I never see anyone. Okay, that might be true. There might be a need for that. But can you build a little margin in to get to know the barista's name and get to their life? Maybe. Maybe. Find your spots. But do you see the people in front of you? Jesus sees the people. Okay? Jesus feels for her. Jesus feels for her. Oh, my God. Right? Jesus speaks to her. Oh, many times we see someone hurting like this. We do not want to go and get that. Right? It's just, hey, blessings, take thoughts and prayers. Um, <laughs> now, really pray. You say that. And thoughts, I guess, are helpful, right? But even better. You don't always have to speak. Can I tell you one of the greatest gifts in that moment is just the gift of presence? What I mean by that is you're just there. I don't have the answers. Even though you do. You don't in this situation. It's just, just be there. Just be there. Jesus helps her where he can. Now you, you have no power to raise the dead. Right? This would be easier. This would be much easier to just be like, hey, you're all gonna wait. Because you're not Jesus. But you know what you can do? Is you can be there and you can talk about the hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus will raise us. And that's where we have to go. See, because here's the deal. You have to think about how to, to apply this message. I'm not your Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You need to think about how to apply this text in your life in situations, right? But here's the deal. This text is not primarily about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. And that's where we need to think. That's where we need to process. Jesus raises this son from the dead. Jesus tells him to arise. The dude sits up in the coffin. He begins to speak. If, she, if, if the mother was crying before, she's definitely crying now. But these are tears of joy, right? This is excitement. This is elation. It's immense joy. He who was dead was now restored to life and given back to his mother. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Great. Amen. End of story. No, we have to think more. The last point is Jesus is the great destroyer of death. That's the last point. See, take notice of the response. Fear, awe, seizes them all. We see that. They begin to glorify God. They're praising Him. They're, they're amazed. However, notice that they say Jesus is a great prophet. And by the way, He is. Jesus is the perfect king. He's the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest. Okay? But He's not like other prophets. 
He's God in the flesh, incarnate there with the power and authority to speak life, to raise the dead. Now, now here's the thing, you gotta understand, some 600 years before that moment, um, there's, a, there's another prophet, and his name's Isaiah. And, uh, or also, actually it's Elijah, forgive me. And it's in 1 Kings 17, and there's a widow, okay? There's a widow in Zarephath, and, and, and he goes there, but, and there's, they, they gotta be thinking about this text, by the way. Really? Yeah, actually, I do. Because it wasn't far from there. And I think that's why they're saying there's a great prophet here. Remember, at the end of chapter 7, we're answering the question, who is this? Who is this? And these folks think, he's a great prophet. God's visited us. They don't mean God incarnate. They mean a prophet. God has sent a prophet to us in that moment. But, but that will not do. That will not do. And, and here's why. Elijah... He's working with the widow too. And he's working with a widow who had her only son die. So this is why the comparison is so clear to these folks. The son became ill and died, and it happened. You can read about it, like I said, in 1 Kings 17. So this town's concluding there's a great prophet. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't, is much more than just a great prophet. And when you look at the accounts, you can't help but see them. When you contrast them. Because Elijah had to stretch himself out over the boy three times and ask for God to raise this young man. Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He just says it. <laughs> he just says it. There is no asking. Why? Because he's God. And, and, and he only didn't speak a word. Because his word is power. Oh, man, when you read the turn of Genesis... God speaks, it happens. Light, let there be light, there's light. You can't take it back, right? And so here is Christ. So not only does Jesus have heartfelt compassion, but he has awesome power. His awesome power to minister to the deepest needs. Jesus has power over, he has power and authority over life and over death. By the way, this is a foreshadow of your, your life. What do I mean by that? This is the last text we'll look at. And this is where we bring it home to bear on you. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through the end. By the way, uh, this text will probably bring up questions for you, and we're not going to answer We can talk later, you can email me, we can chat on the phone. I like to go out for coffee. I like a lot of sun dogs. Um, <laughs> you can join a mission community group, we can do those things. You can't answer everything. I'm, I'm talking like this, and you have time to look for first. That's what I four, <laughs> 13 through 18. Normally, you have to wait to all the, the laughing and turning and going, and now it's just out of the room. All right, good. Thanks for wrestling that. That was Eli. Was that right? <laughs> yeah, I appreciate First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The Apostle Paul's talking to the church in Thessalonica. They're suffering, and here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, and you can say sisters, about those who are asleep. Now, let me just explain. He does not mean Sunday afternoon nap. <laughs> they are dead. This is a dirt nap, okay? Right? About those who are taking a dirt nap. They're, they're dead. Then you, we don't want you to be uninformed. Why? Because we want you to know that you may not grieve as those who do not 
who do have no hope. Okay? What's he saying? He said, you're going to grieve, but you should grieve in a specific way as a people. And we're going to continue on. But, but what he's saying is, grieve as those who have hope. That's essentially what Jeremiah was doing. He's grieving. He's grieving as a, a man who has hope. This sick situation, this circumstance, this moment in time is not forever. The steadfast love of the Lord is forever. His mercy is forever. His, his kindness is forever. And if I have to endure this moment for the rest of my life here on planet Earth until Jesus returns or until I go be with him, I can do it. Why? Because I have the rest of eternity to do that's what, he's, that's what he's going to say. You can endure. Okay? So he continues. By the way, you won't always understand yourself. So many people want to say, why? Why does it happen? It doesn't. You can say it. You can think it. It's generally a rabbit trail that goes nowhere good. It's here, and it's happening. And here's what's even harder for many people to believe. It's come to the end of God. Oh, don't say that, dude. Well, Either that or God's not powerful. And he's not sovereign. And he's not in control. And that's even more of a horrifying thought. You can trust him. Why? Because you look to the cross, which is exactly where this goes. Look at the logic of Paul. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare. To you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of the arch, archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and listen, and the dead in Christ those who are believing in Jesus in life, death and resurrection will rise first. Then those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And listen, this is the, this is the language you need to enter your soul to. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's your future. If you're in Christ, nothing, no one can ever snatch you from his loving, strong, secure hands. There's nothing. Death only ushers you into a stunning reality of what you believe right now by faith. It will be your greatest day. It will be others point tragic. But it will be your greatest day because you'll be with the Lord forever. And then he says in verse 18, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. What are the words we are to encourage one another with? That no matter what, no matter how hard it is right now, you can endure. Because here's the deal. The Lord will return. When he does, he will raise your body that was in the grave, and he will reunite it with the spirit that was with him the moment he died. And if you're wondering, what happens when we die? Real quick, body goes in the ground, spirit goes to be present with the Lord. When Jesus returns, he raises your dead body, he unites it with your spirit, and you now have a glorified body that has no more sin, and you get to be with him forever. Heaven comes down. You're not going to live disenchanted like a spirit floating around, strumming a harp the rest of your life for eternity. Praise Jesus. Sounds awful. Sounds awful. But actually, Jesus has promised to make all things new. All things new. Which means he's going to make this earth new without sin, the way it should be. And Jerusalem's a big old city. And it comes on down. And we live 
with all those who are in Christ who forever, right, from the day of faith, the moment they believe, to now, to return to Jesus' return. We live with Him. We worship Him. We enjoy Him. And all the brokenness, all the death, all the destruction, all the suffering is gone as He presses that out of your eyes. And so listen, church, if you're going to live and make it through this very rough life, you better have a theology of what's going on. You better get your head in the clouds. You better think about that day. The older you get, the more you suffer, the more you are. Encourage one another with those words. Not that, hey, your, your circumstances get better, they might get worse. <laughs> but it can't get worse. Don't say that. That's not how you encourage them. Christ has died in our place, receiving the wrath of God in our place. Those who trust in him, he gives forgiveness, he gives righteousness, he gives the adoption. We're now in the family of God. But it says he rose. So many times you stop the cross. Jesus got up from the grave, and he is the first one of many. And if you're in Christ, listen, you will be raised. And you will live with him forever. So here's the deal. All who are in Christ are going to hear this voice. Gabe, get up. Think about it. Ruby, get up. Right? If you're trusting in Christ, if you believe in him, right? Kevin, get up. On and on and on. Those who are trusting, Jesus is going to say, I don't know how it sounds. I don't even know if you say these words. It's resurrection morning, God. It's time. Think on these things. All he has to do is say, get up and be dead. That's your future. No matter what your present circumstances say. Essentially, all of this, it's kind of all high. When people die in Christ, it's kind of all high. They're not really dead. They're more alive now than they were And that's what's important for us to comprehend. Which is why we need to separate. The day is coming. That day is coming. When? I don't know. But I know it's coming. Keep looking for him. Keep trusting him. And get that thought in your heart and in your mind before the day of suffering comes. And you better set for it. But the army of grace can be well in hell. You can't prepare for it. But let's keep on following him and trusting him. Amen, church. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons. Find out more information about For the City or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.